Colossians chapter 4, please. We have gone through this book and have reached the point where Paul really is concluding his letter to the Colossian church. One of the things that Paul would do when he would write his letters, send his letters, is he would he would send greetings uh, from those who were there uh, helping him in ministry. He would mention them. He would send greetings from them. Where we might do that uh, at the beginning of a letter uh, in, in Bible times and Testament times culturally it was uh, customary to do that toward the end uh, of a letter. Of course, this book of Colossians is a letter sent to the church in the city of Colossae to be read uh, to the members of the church there. And we've gone through and we've looked in a general way at uh, many of these who are mentioned here. And then we've gone back now and, and we're dealing more specifically with just a few of them. We've talked about Tychicus and how that Tychicus was one of those men uh, who was beloved in the ministry, in the church. Uh, he was very much involved in the lives of other people. He is one of the men who is with Paul right now uh, in Rome while Paul is writing this letter. And he is going to be one of the men who takes this letter to the church there at Colossae and, and he's going to give a report about what's going on in Paul's life and the ministry that even though Paul is uh, in prison uh, he still has a little bit of freedom for people to visit him that sort of thing uh, and so he can carry on the ministry in Rome and, and Tychicus is going to take the report and this letter uh, back to the, the, the church at Colossae and explain all that's going on. And then he's going to get a report from them and take it back to Paul and let him know what's going on uh, in the lives of people there. There is another young man, though, who is going to accompany Tychicus on the journey from Rome to Colossae. And Paul mentions him uh, again in verse, let's, let's go back to verse number 9, or actually let's start in verse number 7. All my state shall Tychicus declare unto you his beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant of the Lord, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose that he might know your estate and comfort your hearts with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. They shall make known unto you all things which are done here. If this is all we knew about this young man, Onesimus, his story might, might seem rather plain. And we might wonder, uh, you know, what happened in this young man's life? To bring him to the point where Paul could say he is a faithful and beloved brother. And when Paul describes him that way, he's talking about his faithfulness to Paul himself. Now obviously that would include faithfulness to the ministry in general. But apparently, apparently Onesimus had, had a special ministry in the life of Paul. He, he ministered to Paul. It might have been the kind of thing where where because Paul was not allowed out in, in town, so to speak, 
that Onesimus would have been the one to, to go to the market for him, bring in food for him, uh, maybe even prepare that food for him. But he had, he, it, it seems that Onesimus had a very personal ministry to this man of God. That's not all, though, that we know about him. His story is actually expounded upon in another book in our New Testament. If this is all we know about him, it would be enough. I mean, we would know that he was trustworthy. And, and, and certainly that is a, an admirable quality. The idea behind that word faithfulness, again, is trustworthy. Paul could trust Onesimus. If there was something Paul uh, needed done, he could, he could give Paul uh, give Onesimus the, the assignment, and Paul knew it would be done. And so there's a trustworthiness about this young man. Uh, he, was, he was beloved um, by Paul and apparently by these other men that are, are there working with Paul in the city of Rome. And there's one other thing we know about him from this text that is significant. Paul says about him, he is one of you. Now what that means in this verse is that he is from the city closet. But I think what Paul is also saying to the church there, when he comes back, he is really one of you. He's not just a citizen. He's a child of God. He's part of the family. So let's go to the little letter of Philemon. Over further in your New Testament. Now, if you remember when we introduced you to the book of Colossians, we said that it is one of the four prison epistles. You have Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Those are the four letters that Paul wrote while he was imprisoned in Rome the first time. The book of Philippians was written later, it seems, or at least at a separate time, than the other three, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. One of the practical reasons, other than obviously divine inspiration, uh, which directly the entire process, I understand. But those three letters could be delivered at the same time, or in, by the same people, because from Rome to go back to Colossae, you would have to go through Ephesus to begin with, and then eventually get to Colossae, they're about 100 miles uh, apart. And so Paul writes these three letters together and sends them back by way of Tychicus and Onesimus. This book of Philemon is, is unique in our New Testament. It is one of, one of the most personal letters uh, that Paul has written. It is probably the most personal letter. There's no major doctrine explained in this letter. Now, I personally believe major doctrine is exemplified in this letter, but not necessarily explained like you have even to his, in his letters to Timothy and Titus, and certainly to other churches. But here Paul 
is sending a letter to a man named Philemon. Now, from what we know about Philemon, and we won't take time to read the, the letter, but uh, at least not today, but we know from verse number 2 that Philemon is a faithful servant of God, and the church in Colossae, that Paul writes to in the letter of Colossians, meets in his home. Look at verse number 2. Right? Back at verse number 1. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, unto Philemon, our dearly beloved and faithful labor, and to our beloved Aphia and Archippus, uh, Archippus, excuse me, our fellow soldier, and to the church in thy house. Now, um, Philemon is apparently a, a, a well-to-do citizen of the city of Colossae. He has a home that is large enough for the church to meet. We don't know how many people were in the church, but uh, still, it would take it would take a fairly large home to be able to accommodate a church service. And uh, the other folks here, Aphia and Archippus, these are, uh, Aphia is his wife, and Archippus is their son. And Archippus himself is, is said to be a fellow soldier. He apparently had some uh, significant role in the ministry of the church there in Colossae. So you have here a faithful man, but you also see uh, the result of his faithfulness in his, in his family. Uh, played out in the lives, in the life certainly of his son. Paul is sending this specific letter with Onesimus to Philemon because these two men have some things they need to take care of. Many of the specific details in the story are not given. And I think there's a there's a an element of grace even in what is left out of this story. But many of the specific details about the life of Onesimus and, and even Philemon are left out. But these two men are going to teach us powerful lessons on the subject of, of forgiving others. We don't know, we don't know how Onesimus ended up in Rome, as far as the specifics of how he got there. We don't know how far he was in Rome, he came into contact with the Apostle Paul. That is not told to us. But somehow, in the sovereign control of God over men's lives, Onesimus is a runaway slave. His master was Philemon. It could be that, that Onesimus has stolen. There's, there, there, there's some indications maybe that Onesimus has taken some things, robbed Philemon, and has gone to a place where he can hide out among millions of people in the city of Rome. Somehow, God is orchestrating everything in these men's lives to bring them back together so that you and I can learn some lessons about betrayal, 
and forgiving. Would you bow your heads with me as I leave this in prayer? Father, thank you that this letter is in your word. Thank you that forgiveness is possible through Christ. Not just as far as our salvation is concerned. Certainly, Lord, we thank you for that. But on a personal level, with other people, with family, with with co-workers, with, with friends, with maybe even people we don't have uh, a personal acquaintance with, but maybe we, we, we tend to resent positions people have, or, or whatever the case may be, we can live without bitterness, we can live without resentment, we can let these things go. Because of grace. And because of God's work in our life through the blood of Jesus. Teach us what we need to learn. Make make the application very specific in all of our lives. Lord, this is one of those things, one of those areas in all of our life, if we're not willing, willing to deal with these issues, we cannot grow. And we cannot go forward. Father, I am unworthy to preach your word, and I'm depending now upon your Holy Spirit to do what I cannot do. And I trust your word to do its powerful work. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Of course, the subject of forgiveness is found from Eden really through eternity. And The Bible has much to say and to show about the subject of forgiveness. Someone, someone smarter than me, and I'm certainly glad you did this. Someone has gone through the Bible and has figured out that there are at least 75 different word pictures that the Bible uses to illustrate what happens when we forgive. What happens in our life, what happens in other people's lives, there are word pictures. Not the, God doesn't just take the, the, the doctrine of forgiveness, teaching about forgiveness, and explain it. He exemplifies it. He, he gives us illustrations to help us understand. I'm only going to give you five that I think that, that are powerful uh, in, in how they illustrate what forgiveness really is. Let me, let me give you five of those. One, to forgive is to write in large letters across a debt. And I think that word debt explains a lot about what we need to forgive. Or why we need to seek forgiveness. A debt is something that we owe someone. Or that someone owes us. When someone sins against us, or when we sin against someone, we are indebted to them. When we, when we hurt them in some way, or when they hurt us, we are indebted. They are indebted to us. There's something they owe us, and what they owe us is the same thing we owe to God when we offend or sin against Him. Repentance. Confession. And an ask, uh, a request.
request, a, a, a supplication of forgiveness. To forgive is to write in large letters across a debt, nothing owed. If I were to walk into my mortgage company tomorrow, my bank tomorrow, this will not happen. I wish it would. If I were to walk into my bank tomorrow and the person, and, and I were to say to the person behind the desk, I, 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 I want to talk to you about my mortgage. And they, they, they go through the files and they pull it out and they say, listen, nothing owed. And hand it to me. You would hear some shouting. That's not going to happen. Why? Because I owe them money for my home. Some of us are so caustic when it comes to forgiving that we will actually kind of hang these things over people's head and expect payment rather than being able to say from our hearts sincerely nothing of it. Another word picture. To forgive is to pound the gavel. We're in a courtroom. To pound the gavel in a courtroom and declare not guilty. To forgive is to shoot an arrow so high and so far that it can never be found again. To forgive is to grant a full pardon and uh, to a condemned criminal. Let me read that one again. To forgive is to grant a full pardon to a condemned criminal. That's us. We, we, we because of our sin, are condemned to eternal judgment. But, on the basis of the blood of Jesus Christ, God says, you are On the basis of the blood of Christ, you and I can say to anyone, you're free. I'm not holding anything against you. You don't owe me anything. You are free. One more. To forgive is to smash a clay pot into a thousand pieces so it can never be put together again. Now, out of all 75, there is not one that mentions forgetting, putting out of mind, because the fact is, forgiving and forgetting is an impossibility. Does God forget our sin? No. Does God hold it against us? No. And so although we may not be able to actually forget the hurt, the betrayal, the pain, we don't have to bring it up again. We can shatter those memories into a thousand pieces so that we don't try to put everything back together to relive the resentment. To fester any longer. 
The theme of forgiveness is all through the scriptures and is certainly something that we all need. We all need forgiveness and it's, it's something that in, it, at some point in our life we will need to give. We will at some point need to forgive someone else. And this book of Philemon is going to help us to understand that process. And, and, and I want this to be our thought as we go through this book. And, and I hope you don't mind, but studying Colossians, when we get to Onesimus, we're going to have to study Philemon, alright? Uh, so hopefully it won't take us the two and a half years Colossians has. But there are powerful lessons here we need to learn. So, so we're going to spend a few weeks now in the book of Philemon so that we can come to some understanding of this thing of forgiving others. Or how we even ourselves need to seek forgiveness from others. And this is the thought I want you to carry with you. We are never more like Christ than when we are willing to forgive. Say it again. We are never more like Christ than when we are willing to forgive. Now what I want to do, or at least start to do today, is look at other places in Scripture that explains to us some precautions concerning a lack of of a forgiving spirit. In other words, if you're sitting here and you're thinking, yeah, the preacher, you, you know what, I, I hear what you're saying, and that may be good for some people, but you don't know what they said about me, you don't know what they took from me, you don't know what, how they betrayed me, you don't know how they hurt me, you don't know what happened to me, you, you don't know my past, and we can, we can, we can go down our list, and by the way, you know what, I have my list too, alright? We, we can pull out our list of things and say, but you don't understand! You know what, that's beside the point. What God has to say is for all of us. It applies to every one of us, no matter what our list looks like. And so, if you are sitting here with the spirit of, I refuse to forgive, or I'm unwilling to forgive, or I'm waiting until they come and beg on their knees for forgiveness, and then I might think about it. If that's your spirit, listen very carefully what the Bible has to say about you. It's not pretty. Some precautions about an unforgiving spirit. First of all, an unforgiving spirit produces produces bitterness. Now some people would say an unforgiving spirit is bitterness. I would say they certainly work hand in hand, but my opinion, I can't prove this, the Bible doesn't say this specifically, but my opinion is, when we read in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12 and verse number 15, about a root of bitterness, I believe the root is an unforgiving spirit. And bitterness grows from that. When any of us lives in our hurts 
when any of us constantly dwells, or or maybe not even constantly, but but when when certain names are brought up in conversation, certain people are talked about, or or certain thoughts come into our when when we think about certain people, talk about certain people, remember certain things from our past. When, when those kind of things come into our mind and we live there for a little while thinking about the unfairness and the, and the, the, the mistreatment or the abuse or the, whatever the case may be, we, we're obviously harboring some kind of resentment. We are, we are in some way demonstrating that we have not let this go. We haven't shot this arrow so high and so far that we'll never find it again. We haven't set in our heart nothing owed. Some people think for some reason that by harboring this resentment going on in their bitterness that this is, this is somehow getting back at someone for what they've done. The opposite is true. That person you're bitter with, harboring resentment against, may not even know if you have a problem. And you're just hurting yourself. You know what? You know what harboring resentment does? It does nothing but create personal prisons. Harboring resentment does nothing but create personal prisons and it keeps wounds and pains open and sore. Just from my own personal experience, alright? I've shared some of these things with you before. I, growing up in a broken home, um, my, my father who, who is gone now, my, my, my natural father who, is, who died, uh, actually the year when we moved out here, um, was an alcoholic. He was drunk. Now, I have very few memories of him sober. I, I, I have very few. Uh, I wish I could remember more, and I don't know why sometimes I can't. It does bother me at times. But my mother remarried when I was 10, and, and that turned out to be an abusive situation. So I, I'm, I'm sharing some of my list, is what I'm doing. So, uh, you know, I, I, growing up, I, I got both extremes. Uh, a, a father who, when he was drunk, was very docile and, and very mellow. On the other end, a stepfather who was very angry and very violent. When, when God started to work in our hearts back uh, the year 2000, 2001, those, those kind of things about going somewhere to plant a church, this area, because I grew up across the lake in Gainesville, this area was not even on my map. It was like Georgia was somewhere in Russia. When we were in evangelism, if we had meetings in Georgia or Florida, my stomach churned crossing the state line. I'm being completely serious. I did not ever want to come back here. Ever. And I had to come to realize that I was keeping some wounds open. I was letting those things continue to be sore spots in my life. Who does that for you? 
Or who is that sore spot that you're continuing to allow to fester in your life? What has happened to you in the past that was unfair? And it was unfair. By the way, God never said life would be fair. But you're allowing whatever it was or however it happened, that unfair situation to continue to be a sore spot in your life. What kind of personal prisons have you created for yourself? What kind of bitterness are you harboring in your life as a result of an unforgiving spirit? Let me read Hebrews 12, 15 to you. It says, looking diligently lest any man fail, that literally means to fall short of the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness turning up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Now, I'm just going to end right here for this morning's service, alright? And just explain a few things from this verse to warn us all. Warning us about an unforgiving spirit. An unforgiving spirit will produce bitterness in your life. And Hebrews 12.15 says, bitterness results from not taking God's grace. Not taking God's grace. I remember in, in Maine, the state of Maine, many years ago I, I was preaching in that church on the subject of bitterness. After the service, no, I'm sorry, the next day after that, a lady asked uh, the pastor if we could meet together because she wanted to talk to me about her particular situation. And I'm not going to go into her particular situation because, quite honestly, it, it was, if humanly speaking, anybody had a right to be bitter, she did. And you know what? Maybe that's how you feel about yourself sometimes. If anybody had the right to be better, I'd be a preacher because this is what happened. Okay, that's between you and God. I personally, from the scripture, don't see that anybody had the right to be better. Alright? I'm including myself in that as well. But this lady began to explain her situation and, 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 and the more she, more she told this, you know, one of the things they tell you in, in training for counseling is just don't act shocked. And that was hard. I mean, it really was. Shocked and, and, and sad and, and just, wow. How could one person go through all of this? And when she went through her list, she came to the end and she said, now you tell me how I'm not supposed to be there. And there was only one thing I could say. Only one thing I could say. We're set of balance. Grace. Much more about She had been sinned against. She had been hurt. And it was going to only be through God doing for her what she could not do herself. That's what grace is. Grace is God giving us His strength. To do what we can't do in our own. Grace is God giving us the ability to do what we don't have the ability to do. I remember her saying to me, I can't.
cannot forgive. And by the way, some of us have said that very same thing. I know I have. We've said that. I cannot forgive them. I cannot. And you know what? We can't. We are exactly right when we say that. We can't without God helping us. We can't without grace. And so whatever the open wound is in your life, you may not remember even all the specifics, but I can tell you this. One thing, when, when those open wounds, those sore spots in our life, when, when those come into the forefront of our thinking, I promise you one thing we did not do when that happened. One thing we did not do was pray for grace. But that is something we can do now. Right now, God can give us the grace to forgive. And right now, God can give us the grace to live. Because some things that people face in their life are really hard to live with. can make it happen. Bitterness results from not taking God's grace. I want you to see something else in Hebrews 12, 15. The Bible says, Lest any man found the grace of God with any root of bitterness bringing up trouble you. Bitterness affects you. And I really have to spend a lot of time here because you know already that that's true, right? One thing that the Bible does make absolutely clear about bitterness is this. It is sin. No excuse. No right to be bitter. Bitterness. Resentment. All the anger, all the malice that goes along with it, all the, all the arguing, all the erupting uh, uh, anger, the violent outbursts, it's sin. You say, Preacher, how, where do you find that? Ephesians chapter 4. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Get rid of it. And by the way, those different things mentioned in that verse, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking, they all go together. And they're different, they're different demonstrations of malice. Bitterness, bitterness is that, is that lava anger, that, that deep-seated anger that, that does come to the surface every once in a while, but it doesn't quite boil over just yet. The wrath, the wrath is, is the sudden explosion. The anger is when the bitterness of the lava does come to the surface. And the clamor, the clamor is the arguing and the shouting that goes along with it. And the evil speaking is, is the, the rumors or the lies or the, 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 the things that we say against the people that we're holding, that with whom we're bitter. It all goes together. Put it away. It affects you. It certainly affects you spiritually. It's sin. Let me read to you what one writer had to say about bitterness. 
Listen to his word picture. It is a figurative term denoting that fretted and irritable state of mind that keeps a man in perpetual animosity, and, and, and using the word man there in general, I hope, I think. A man in perpetual animosity that inclines him to harsh and uncharitable opinions of men and things, that makes him sour, crabby, and repulsive in his general demeanor, that brings a scowl over his face and infuses venom into the words of his tongue. Now, please don't know your spouse. That may sound like them, but it also may sound like you, too. Is it very easy for you to get angry? Is it very easy for you to erupt? What kind of things do you find yourself saying about other people? Other places, maybe. Events in your life. Do you find, or do others find that you are sour, crabby, and repulsive in your general demeanor? Bitterness affects you. You know what? Science has done studies and found out that that a bitter spirit affects you physically. It can lead certainly to things like ulcers. It can lead to heart heart attacks, heart trouble, high blood pressure. All going back to just the festering sore spots in our life. It affects you. But then the rest of verse 15 says, and thereby many be defiled. Not only affects you, it affects those around you. Your family, your co-workers, your friends. Your church. You know, bitterness is, 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 is like, if, if we want to use the disease model, bitterness is like an infectious disease that spreads very easily. It's, it's one of those airborne viruses that's very easy to give to others. Your bitterness can literally Infect your family to the point that it tears it apart. It can make your work environment unbearable. It can keep you from having friends because no one wants to be around you. It can split churches. And I've seen it happen. It can destroy ministries and marriages. Your bitterness, it affects you and it affects those around you. If you are here today, I said it's not a pretty picture. And there is in your heart bitterness and resentment, an unforgiving spirit. You are damaging yourself. You are damaging your relationships with other people. You are damaging your walk with God. Bitterness is a killer. And some of you are dying because you will not forgive. <laughs>